Well, how many had a good Thanksgiving? Everyone have a good Thanksgiving. How many ate too much food? Probably, yeah, just as many of us that clapped had ate too much food. Well, uh, just want to say good morning. We are all so glad that you're here. And now that we're rolling into the Christmas season, in a week, things are starting to look a whole lot more like Christmas up here. Amen? Think about it. How many of you have your Christmas trees out, out of the box or uh, went out and bought the fresh ones and got them up, decorated, good to go? Anybody got their Christmas trees up? Some of you are ahead of the game. Some of you are way, hard, way far behind the game. But I love everything about Christmas trees. I love everything about Christmas, actually. I love the Christmas tree. I love uh, the way it looks. I love the way the real ones smell, although we have an artificial one. And don't you hate it? Every year you get it out of the box, you have to re-fluff the thing, and it seems like it never does fluff as much as the year before. But Christmas trees are a big deal this time of year for sure. Um, as I said, I love them to look at them, watch them, decorate them. I get out there in the front yard and uh, decorate my big blue spruce every year. It's growing more every year. I'm happy to get more lights on it every year, a taller ladder every year. But the Christmas tree is basically, um, you might say, a centerpiece of the season. Well, I said all that to say you may not realize this, but do you realize how important the tree, not necessarily the Christmas tree, but how important the tree was in the Bible? Anybody realize that or stop long enough to think about it? Trees actually played a big role in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Genesis, what do they start with? In the center of the garden, there's a tree, a tree of knowledge. That tree, uh, uh, its message it brings is that we have the choice to trust God, to follow God, or we can be out there doing our own thing the way we want to do it. God will give us free choice. Then in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelations, you find another tree smack dab in the center of heaven. It's called the tree of life. The tree of life, its message is that God has promised to bring healing to the nations. I don't know about you, but I think that's an awesome thought, especially in the world that we live in today that needs so much healing for sure. But let me ask you this, when it comes to the Bible, how many of you have ever started a Bible reading program? Have you ever done that on your own? Or maybe this year you're determined, I'm going to read the Bible more than I have ever done before. You get all excited about it. You get your cup of coffee, you sit down, and you think, I'm going to start in the New Testament, in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, that'd be great. 30 seconds in, you're ready to give up and quit. Because the first chapter of Matthew is nothing but a big, long list of names. Name after name after name. This person begat that person who begat that person who begat that person who begat that person. You're sitting there confused thinking, I don't even know what beget means, but there's a whole lot of begetting going on in uh, Matthew chapter 1 for sure. Well, what's going on there? Actually, when it pertains to the tree, they're describing another kind of tree. It's actually a family tree, and it's the family tree of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. So that's what they're describing in the first chapter of Matthew. We're starting a Christmas, season, uh, Christmas series called the family tree of Jesus. And I want to start this out by reading the first verse in the uh, book of Matthew. It says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done a study on your genealogy. Maybe some of you have. Maybe you've tried the Ancestry.com type of thing. But I would imagine if you had, most of you did it because you just kind of made it a hobby. 
Maybe you wanted to find out kind of who you were related to. And it's just kind of a fun thing to do. I haven't done it, but I'd kind of like to do it someday. But the truth is, in the first century, nobody did this as a hobby. Nobody did this just to pass the time of day. It was a big, big deal. Genealogy was one of the biggest deals in the first century Jewish world because your family tree actually was your sense of identity. Your family tree actually told you who you were and where you came from. Uh, it gave you a sense of credibility for better or for worse. It all boils down to your family tree was like your birth certificate. It was like your social security card. It was like your driver's license and your background check all rolled into one. So it was important. It was a very big deal to the first century Jewish world. So Matthew is the only gospel writer that starts writing his gospel, uh, introducing Jesus the Messiah with this big, long list of names, with this genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And the reason he's writing this is because he's addressing a Jewish audience. And they realize how big a deal this really is. So it's not surprising that Matthew would go there. It's not surprising that Matthew would do that. But what is surprising is who Matthew includes on that list. It's very surprising some of the people that are involved in the family lineage of Jesus Christ. I say that to say bloodlines matter. Bloodlines really do matter. And I think that's the main message in Matthew chapter 1 is saying that bloodlines really do matter. I remember several years ago, I learned that bloodlines also matter in animals, in horses. When we bought our two horses, I didn't know anything about horses. I thought a horse is a horse, of course. And let, anyway, I just thought a horse, some of you are sharp. I just thought, um, you know, a horse is a horse. Cheryl, knowing horses a lot better than I do, says, no, you need to kind of research their background to see uh, where they came from, who their parents were. It'll tell you what kind of temperament that horse might have. It'll tell you what kind of horse that horse might be. And if you want to show that horse, it'll show you if they had some show horses in their family history. Anyway, it shows you how valuable that horse is. Well, Cheryl's horse, Grace, comes from a really good bloodline. She has a, a big, long pedigree of some famous horses in her past. Uh, my horse, Belle, not so much. <laughs> She's a registered quarter horse, but you wouldn't recognize any names in her history. Don't tell Belle that because she doesn't know the difference. But anyway, Grace is a lot more valuable horse because of her lineage. Well, let me tell you, holidays kind of bring out our bloodlines in a very real way sometimes, for good or for bad, for better or for worse. I mean, any of you, and you don't have to answer this, but any of you, would you like to prune your, uh, your, your family tree a little bit once in a while? You don't have to answer that, but we all would probably. How many of you have got that certain family member that whenever you talk about them, you kind of whisper their name? Or you've got that family member that you put all sorts of disclaimers out there on before somebody meets him, and he's a great guy, but he'll tell some pretty off-color jokes. He's a great guy. He's been in prison. He's out now. Don't bring that up. And Aunt Betty's going to be here, and she gets a little crazy when she drinks too much eggnog and tries to dance with everyone and argue with everyone. And you might be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, Pastor. We don't have anybody that we have to warn people about in our family let me just say, you probably are that person that they're warning everybody about. <laughs> so the truth is, in our text, Matthew doesn't cut out any of the embarrassing family members that Jesus had in his family tree, and he had a lot of them. Matthew includes men, but he also includes women. And back in that day, that was unheard of in a genealogy. They usually just went by the men's names. But Matthew doesn't do that. He just lays it all out on the line. He includes liars, cheaters, Thieves, 
manipulators, adulterers. Jesus is like some of us, even though we might not want to admit it, we're related to some pretty embarrassing people, amen? So, gee, I, I didn't even get a laugh out of that. We're embarrassed, we're, we're related to some pretty embarrassing people. So anyway, Jesus came into this world through imperfect people, for imperfect people. Did you get that? Jesus, when he came into this world, when he left the glories of heaven, came into this world through imperfect people, for imperfect people. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a whole lot better. Amen? He didn't clean any of it up. Matthew just lays it out, says this is it. This is Jesus' family tree, warts and all, good, bad, and the ugly. And I would say this, if his family tree resembled or symbolized a Christmas tree, I guarantee you it wouldn't look like the beautiful tree in Rockefeller Center. Amen? I'm thinking that family tree is going to look more like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Amen? I mean, it's got some barren branches. It's got some crooked trunk. It's got some scraggly ornaments on it. And to tell you the truth, I think most of us can relate to that kind of tree a whole lot more than we could ever re, uh, relate to that uh, uh, Rockefeller Center beautiful tree. And it's because we kind of know Jesus' family tree was messed up. And at the same time, we also know that our family trees are kind of messed up sometimes. I think this is what it says to us when you break it all down. If Jesus had people in his family tree like that, do you think he's got room for me in his family tree? If he has people like we're going to hear about in his family tree, you think he could make room for me in his family tree? Well, I think so. In this series, we're going to look at the um, not-so-pretty limbs of Jesus' family tree. I'll put it that way. The first one we're going to look at is the limb of Jacob. Let me just kind of set this up for you if you don't know anything about Jacob. His story is found in Genesis, and it covers a little territory. It starts in Genesis chapter 25 and goes through Genesis chapter 49. I'm going to kind of paraphrase and jump around a little bit for sake of time. But his story, Jacob's story, actually starts out in the delivery room. Actually, it starts before that in his mother's womb. And he wasn't there by himself. He had company. He had a brother in there. He had a twin in there. Look what it says in Genesis 25, verse 21. Now, Isaac, that's uh, Jacob's father, who was about 60 years old at this time, he pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord uh, granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her womb. If you're getting the picture, you've got these two infants, these two developing babies in the womb that are going all MMA on each other. I mean, they're wrestling and they're battling within her womb even before they're born. In fact, Jacob was born, when he was born into this world, he was born trying to control things. And you'll see as we go along, a whole lot doesn't change for a long time in his life. But skip down to verse 25. It says, And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. As soon as Jacob was born, after Esau, he's reaching out, trying, him, trying to pull him back. The name Esau actually means red, which wasn't a real stretch or very creative on the parents' part. But Jacob meant holder of the heel. It also meant one who tries to go first. So you might say even before, long before Jacob could even talk, he was actually saying, I want to be first. I want to be first. Fast forward to verse 27. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, that's his father, loved Esau. 
But Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. So Esau, he's the man of the field. He's a fisherman. He's a hunter. He's a farmer. He's strong. He's physical. You might say he's a, a man's man. But he's definitely his dad's favorite son. But Jacob, on the other hand, is his mother's favorite son. So Esau's the one that's always tracking mud through the tent. Esau's the one that's always uh, leaving things out, getting in trouble, uh, leaving the TV on and getting the blame for it because Jacob can do no wrong because he's a mama's boy for sure. So Jacob, this mama's boy, uh, has it made really. But the biggest difference between these two brothers I want to bring out up front is that Esau didn't want anything to do with spiritual things. Esau didn't want to have anything to do with anything that had to do with God. Matter of fact, one day Esau, he's been out in the field, he comes home, he's starving, and Jacob is in the kitchen, probably with his apron on, cooking stew. Uh, Esau smells the stew and says, hey, Jacob, give me some of that stew, I'm famished. And Jacob immediately says this in verse 31. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, well, fine, what good's it going to do me if I'm going to starve anyway? Verse 33, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So Esau swore an oath, he ate, and then he left. The big thing about this is birthrights are very important. Birthrights involve material blessing, spiritual blessing, and the one who had the birthright or was given the birthright actually had the right to become the head of the tribe, the head of the family, the spiritual leader of the home. So think about this. Esau not really wanting or caring anything to do with the birthright was a big deal. And it was a really big deal to God, so much so that God even called him godless. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 about Esau. It says that there be no immoral or godless person among you like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So think about this. Jacob cons his brother into trading his future for his appetite. He cons him. He tricks him into trading his future for his appetite, but he doesn't stop there. His dad is older now. He's about to die. He calls in Esau to give him the firstborn son's blessing. Look what he says in chapter 27, verse 3. He tells Esau, And go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Well, Rebecca, the mother, hears about all this and she tries to come up with a plan to trick her husband Isaac into actually giving the birthright blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. So he goes in, uh, Jacob, I mean, Isaac is blind. So Esau, Esau, I'll get these names right. Jacob, along with his mother, concoct this plan that they're going to dress him up in Esau's clothes so he smells like Esau. They put animal hair on his arms so he's hairy like Esau. And he goes into his father pretending he's Esau and tricks his father out of the birthright. You thought your family was a little dysfunctional? Maybe not. Amen? But it splits the family apart. Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Rebekah says to her son Jacob in uh, chapter 27, verse 43, now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a few days until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. So Rebecca tells her son Jacob, go stay with your uncle Laban for a little while, a few days. Rebecca is kind of a manipulator too. 
she's manipulating things to try to protect her favorite son, but it backfires because those few days that she sends him to Laban turn into decades. And the truth is, Jacob never sees his mother alive again. That's the tragic part of the story. So Jacob stays with his uncle. If you know the story, he falls in love with Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. Look what it says in chapter 29, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Let me stop there. This does not mean that she had poor eyesight and she needed glasses. It probably means that she's a little on the unattractive side. I'll just say that, especially because of how it describes Rachel. The verse later says, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years. He's telling his uncle Laban in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So verse 20 says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Everybody say all with me. Isn't that precious? That just melts your heart. Well, let me just say this. Jacob has bet his match in his soon-to-be father-in-law, Laban, his uncle. Um, he's met his match because Laban's a bigger manipulator and conniver than Jacob was. So Jacob agrees. He'll work seven years for Laban in exchange for Rachel. He works those seven years, and look what his father-in-law does to him. On the day of his wedding, he throws a huge party. He gets Jacob drunk off of his feet. He uh, throws this big party, and Jacob is so drunk that that night on his wedding night, he sleeps with the wrong woman. Yeah, this is in the Bible. He sleeps with the wrong woman. He actually sleeps with the older sister Leah instead thanks to a lot of help from Laban, I'd say that put a damper on your honeymoon just a little bit. Amen? A little bit. Like the whole family's going to end up on an episode of Jerry Springer. Amen? <laughs> it's going to get worse and worse. So Jacob actually is getting a taste of his own medicine. Laban tricks Jacob, um, and then when he goes to explain things, Laban's as cool as a cucumber. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one, although he had already said he would. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob agrees. He's already worked seven years. He's agreeing to work seven more years for Rachel, and he does. And when he finishes those seven years, they get married. Uh, Jacob stays uh, with Rachel close to home. And he just prospers. Everything he touches turns to gold. So much so that Laban is upset. He's jealous of, of Jacob and how God is blessing Jacob. So he's, he's uh, treating Jacob terribly, treating him poorly. He's uh, cutting his wages, I think it said like 10 times. So one day, God knows what's going on. God spoke to Jacob and told him to leave that place and go back to the homeland of his father. And by now, Jacob is a very wealthy man, so he packs up his wives, his children, his livestock, his herds, and all of his possessions, and he heads home. I'm imagining every step of that journey home, he's thinking of Esau that's waiting for him there. He's thinking about how he had tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright, not once, but actually twice. Tricked him out of his birthright. He's probably wondering, this guy, what's he going to do, especially when he's threatened to kill me? So Jacob, being so scared, sends, a sends some messengers his way, telling Esau, I'm coming home, I'm coming back, saying, hopefully we can reach an agreement. 
and let bygones be bygones. But the messengers come back after delivering the message to Esau. I know this story has a lot in it, but you're paying attention. Chapter 32, verse 6 says, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In other words, he heard that you were coming before you even told him you were coming. And he amassed, uh, you know, 400 soldiers as your welcoming committee. Look at verse 7. In great fear and distress, I would imagine Jacob was in great fear and distress. He's probably fearing for his life. It says, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. Why would he do this? Well, verse 8 tells us why. Because he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And just knowing Jacob and the kind of guy he is, I'm just thinking he going to definitely put himself in the second group he might even create a third group uh, to put himself into and can you imagine him telling the first group uh, uh, my revengeful brother you're going to meet him he's going to have 400 soldiers with him I want you all to go first I'll catch up with you later that's kind of guy he was so what is Jacob doing he's back to conniving he's back to manipulating things Jacob is like the little boy in the uh, play at school that had two lines in the play he, his lines were, it is I, be not afraid. He worked and worked on those lines, it is I, be not afraid, it is I. He had him down pat. The night of the play, he walks on stage, sees all the people. And all he could fumble out is, it's me, and I'm scared to death. <laughs> I kind of think that's how Jacob probably felt at that moment. So Jacob sends one group in one direction, another in another. And his reasoning is, well, if they catch up with me, they're only going to catch up with half of me. So again, I'm thinking, he's kind of still thinking too much about himself. But I will hand him this. He does go to God in prayer, but there's one main thing missing in his prayer. He starts it out in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, he says, Lord, you know what's missing? He doesn't say, and my God too. He doesn't say what is missing is relationship. I believe to this point in his life, Jacob has not really developed a personal relationship with his God. Matter of fact, it's the first recorded prayer that Jacob prays. And listen to this prayer in verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. Still thinking of himself. I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Oh yeah, God, remember them too. I kind of think that's his attitude. So after he prays, he starts scheming again. He's thinking about how he can bribe Esau, how he can soften him up, he starts thinking, well, I'll send him 200 female goats. And then a few days later, I'll send him 20 male goats. Um, and by the time we meet, he's going to be so appreciative of my generosity that, that he's going to wonder why he was after me in the first place. So Jacob is still scheming. Look what happens in verse 22. That night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Real quickly, if you're a note taker and you're taking notes, there's a couple things I want to bring out in this story that we need to remember. When it comes to God, you need to rem remember to get alone with God. Take time to get alone with God. Jacob is now al alone, and I believe he realizes his scheming is not going to work against Esau, who has held this grudge for 20 years. But because he did take that moment to get alone, God comes on the scene. Look what it says in verse 24. 
So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. If you've read this story, you know who this man was. This man was Jesus, who is always in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. You see it right, angel of the Lord, in capital letters. You know this is Jesus coming on the scene. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ showing up to have a wrestling match with Jacob that lasts all night long. And somewhere in the night, Jesus touches the hip of Jacob and pulls it out of socket. Then look at verse 26. Then the man, meeting Jesus, said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So if you're taking notes, the second thing we need to do is surrender our will over to God's will. In every situation, we need to come to the point where we're going to let it go. Surrender our will over to God. Because in this situation, during this wrestling match, God broke him. God broke Jacob. And I want you to see that he's not this big macho man at the moment saying, Jesus, uh, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. No, he's probably on the ground writhing in pain. He just had his hip pulled out of socket, out of joint. He's broken. And I think what this part of the story tells us, it tells us about the brokenness of his flesh. I think it tells us about the brokenness of his human nature. That has to happen before God can even bless him. But that same thing has to happen before God can actually bless us. So this story just isn't about him. It's about all of us. When my son Austin was little, he loved to wrestle. I'd be out working construction and I would come home and he would meet me at the door wanting to wrestle. He would wear me out. I would wear him out. He got so tired that all he could do was hang on my leg and I'm there trying to shake him off and he's hanging on for dear life. I kind of picture Jacob being the same way hanging on to Jesus' leg for dear life, uh, begging and pleading, saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. Well, look at verse 27. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. He changed his name. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Another reason why I believe this is Jesus uh, manifested in the Old Testament, without a doubt, is because every time in the Bible... When God changes somebody's life, well, not every time, but most of the times, he also changed their name. And Jesus says, Jacob, you're no longer going to be known for your manipulative, manipulative ways. I'm changing your name today, and it's going to be Israel, because it means God will prevail. Verse 30 says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face. Anytime you see God face to face, let me tell you something, things are starting to get a little personal. He was starting to have a personal moment uh, with God when he saw him face to face. And then he says, and yet my life was spared. Let me say this, any, anyone who ever meets God in a very real way can't stay the same. You cannot meet God if you have a genuine encounter with God and stay the same as you always were. It just it doesn't work that way. So uh, this, is also, this also makes it very difficult for Jacob to go against Esau. Makes him a whole lot more vulnerable because now he's a nicer guy. I mean, it makes him a whole lot more vulnerable to walk up uh, to Jacob, but it makes, uh, to Esau, but it makes him a lot more uh, pliable in God's hands. Makes him a lot more trusting on God instead of himself. Remember, he always wanted to go first. Remember, he always wanted to make everything about himself. Well, now he's kind of had a change of heart. I think sometimes 
God will cause us to go through difficult times. So we'll get our eyes back on Him. Think about this. It says, So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face. His life was spared. But he limped from that day forward. For the rest of his life, he limped. You might think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. Because every step he took and every step that he limped, it was a reminder of the day that he let God get a hold of his life. Of the day he let God forgive his sins. This made Jacob even more vulnerable to Esau. He trusted God even more. So it's through Jacob's brokenness, God gets all the glory. Do you realize that's how it's supposed to be? We're not supposed to get the glory for anything. God's supposed to get all the glory. And probably a person that knew this more than anybody was a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. She was a survivor of the Holocaust who was very popular. Somebody came to her one day and asked her and said, uh, do you have it, find it difficult to remain humble? Her reply was simple. She said, you remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday morning on the back of that little donkey? And everyone was waving their palm branching, pr- branches, praising God, throwing garments on the road. She said, do you think for one minute that in that little donkey's head, he thought, wow, this is all about me? (laughs) I thought, what a good answer. She continued on. She says, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in in his glory, I'll give him all the praise. I'll give him all the glory. I'll give him all the honor. The Bible says that Jacob lined up his family according to the value he placed on each one, just in case... Esau's revenge turns into a massacre, so he's not had a huge change yet. But to Jacob's credit, he goes ahead of his family. He becomes the man he should be. He goes and meets with Esau and the 400 soldiers, and he goes with humility. He goes with respect. Look what it says in Genesis 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. What would you do if you looked up and saw 400 men coming at you? I'm thinking he's probably in a panic. Uh, His uh, mind is, he's probably thinking, yikes, this is it. Verse 3, he, meaning Jacob himself, went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times. You may not realize it, but seven is the number of completion in the Bible. He bows down seven times as he approached his brother. Remember that grudge that Esau had nursed for those 20 years? Well, look what happens in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. God did a miracle. Without a doubt, God did a full-blown miracle. So in front of his wives and his children, in front of uh, these 400 soldiers, these two brothers that had been at odds for 20 years come together, hugging, kissing, loving on each other, embracing each other. And Esau even invites Jacob to come over to his home. Think about it. Esau's not coming to seek revenge. He's seeking relationship. He definitely had an opportunity to settle the score for being wronged by Jacob, but instead he chose to forgive. You know, we have no idea when God calmed that storm in uh, Esau's heart. I kind of think it was on his way to meet Jacob. And also think that because I think that's why we need to stay in contact with God often, maybe always, Because God can move some mountains in your life if you'll take time to pray. Do you realize that? The Bible even says you have not because you ask not. How many times do we complain about not getting an answered prayer, but we really haven't even taken it to God in the first place? And by the way, God's never late. We might think He is. 
He's usually not early either, but he's always right on time. And I guarantee you, he will always come through no matter what your need is. So when I read this story, I've got a big question for not only you, but for me, for all of us. How impossible is your situation today? How, is impos- how impossible is the thing or those things that you're going through right uh, now today compared to what Jacob was going through with Esau? being at odds against each other for those 20 years, battling ever uh, from the time they were in the womb. I really love this story because it tells us something supernatural happened to Esau. Something also supernatural happened to Jacob. And we know that during script, uh, from Scripture because it confirms it. It says, God is the God of Jacob more than twice as many times as it labels God the God of Abraham. That tells us something right there. So what this means, I believe God is saying, I'm the God of the stumbler. I'm the God of the failure. I'm God of the individual that takes a whole lifetime to to come to me and realize that they need me. You know, that thrills my heart because I am a stumbler. I am a failure. I haven't always known God, but he chose to be my God just just as he chose to be Jacob's God and as he has chosen to be your God. The truth is, when it comes down to it, there are only two kinds of people on this planet. I'm not talking about rich, poor, short, tall, black, or white. That doesn't even matter. Two types of people on this planet, saved and unsaved. And the Christmas story, above everything else, tells us how Jesus came to this world to save. How Jesus came into this world to save that which was lost. Remember back in 2010, those Chilean miners over in Chile that were trapped in that mine 2,300 feet below the surface for 69 days. I mean, it was like the whole world was watching that mine and that rescue effort. And as they started bringing those guys up alive, I remember watching it, and I remember a tear welling up in my eyes. And I wondered, I don't even know these guys. They're halfway around the world. Why am I getting emotional? Why is the world getting emotional? I think it's because it's my story. And if you're a Christian, it's your story. You and I were trapped below the earth. We were hopeless. And God performed a major rescue mission by sending His Son 2,000 years ago to die on a cross to rescue us. And just like those rescued miners needed someone to go into the belly of the earth to be saved, God sent His own Son into the belly of the earth. He met with the devil. It says, the scripture says, he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave away from the devil. And he also told Satan at the same time, I'll be back. And I'll put you in the lake of fire. I'll put you in the pits of hell. Think about it. Jesus came to this earth. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. He he ascended to the Father. To sit at the right hand of the Father. To rule and reign supreme forever. Think about it, the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. And that's my story, because God sent His Son into this world to rescue us from the darkness of our sins, to rescue us from the wrath that was to come. You know, the Bible calls the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I think it ought to be elevated to the great news of Jesus Christ. And it's the greatest news ever told, and it all is told through the Christmas story that we're celebrating for the next several weeks. But you know, it shouldn't just be for the several weeks. It should be for every week of the year. Amen? Could you stand to your feet this morning?
I want you to think about the guy that I have rambled on about for 30 minutes, this Jacob, and remember where I started. He was included in the family tree of Jesus, being manipulative, conniving, scheming, and God changed his heart. That same God is here today to change our hearts because we all have a little bit of Jacob in us. No matter how good we think we are, we still have some Jacob in us. So this morning as I pray, I pray that this will be the desire of your heart. Could you bow your hearts in prayer? Lord God, I pray that every heart in here would say, Lord, I surrender. I'm not going to wrestle with you any longer. I don't want to wrestle with you any longer. I'm not going to wrestle with my own flesh anymore. But God, I'm going to surrender my will over to your will. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts and our minds. As we make time to get along with you, help us to deliberately make time to get along with you. May we hear your voice leading us and guiding us in the way that we should go. And Father, may our hearts rest upon you, not upon ourselves, not upon our wisdom, our strength, or our ability. Lord, we thank you for including us in your precious family tree and for giving us the gift of your salvation. And Lord God, we all thank you for the joy of this wonderful Christmas season that comes through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you praise, we give you glory and honor in your holy name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.